This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I spent a little time today trying to pinpoint where it first kind of hit my consciousness. And I would, I would have to say it was kind of a twofold thing that happened around 1980. I think it was, you know, upon the release of The River, and, and more specifically, the River Tour. Now, I was too young for my parents to let me go to a concert. Um, but all the kind of cool older kids that I knew from down at the beach, they were all going to see him. I, I, it was either at the Forum or the Sports Arena. And I remember, A, giving them money to buy me a, a Bruce concert shirt because I thought that was something that I needed. So obviously, I must have heard the music somewhere. So I remember specifically... And this is this will date me because people don't do this anymore, apparently, or haven't in 30 years. But I remember hearing Born to Run. Now, it was a few years late, but I remember hearing it on KLOS and, and just being so moved by the, you know, the power of it that I had to tape it. And I had it on a cassette tape with Crazy Train from Ozzy Osbourne. I know those are two things that don't usually go together, but there was something about that I knew that you know Bruce was something that smart people listened to. And then Born to Run really moved me. And I think that was happening concurrently with me probably being exposed to Hungry Heart. So I know that was his, his first top 10 single. So that was probably his first song, which would have actually come onto my radar, actually on the radio. everyone and welcome to a new episode of set lusting bruce your podcast all about bruce springsteen his music and mostly his fans i am your host jesse jackson and i have another person that i've stalked on social media and said please talk to me please talk to me please talk to me so uh my new friend brian is on the show tonight brian welcome to the podcast Thank you for having me, Jesse. Uh, you, and, in, and in full disclosure, you didn't stalk me that much. Oh, I that's, just, that's very kind of you. I was just playing hard to get, so it only, <laughs> it only seemed like you were more urgent than it was. Oh, that's nice. So tell us a little about yourself, Brian. Well, my name is Brian Bihar. I'm a uh, longtime TV sitcom writer. I've been doing that for uh, the past 26 years. Um, I'm so, beginning a pivot into... Um, professorhood. I've been uh, teaching for the past year down at Chapman University, teaching writing, and um, I am a longtime, well, lifelong uh, Los Angelino and Californian and a longtime uh, Bruce fan, though perhaps not necessarily in, in the same ways that, that, that a lot of people are, but uh, I'm very excited to, uh, to get to talk uh, all things uh, Springsteen related. And, uh, 
hopefully I redeem myself. I've uh, I've been studying up as much as I can today, so I, so I don't sound like a complete rube, but I'll do the best I can. Well, I don't think you can sound bad, though. I I will. I warned you that as we get closer, I may have to ask for. Um, Terry Polo stories because I have had a crush on her since sports night and you, one of the sitcoms you worked on, uh, she was one of the lead actresses. She was, um, that I was, uh, one of the writers on I'm with her. Yes. I think that, that was the 2000, I want to say that was the 2004 season. Um, and like I said, I've been doing this for 26 seasons and I've been on 21 shows. So, um, and I don't even mean that as a humble brag, but it is hard to remember what came what year. But uh, Terry Polo, I understand it perfectly having a crush on. She was delightful, beautiful, both beautiful and funny. And uh, a lot of you may know her as uh, Ben Stiller's girlfriend, fiance, maybe even w- I think wife in the uh, Meet the Parents series. But we yeah. were uh, we were lucky enough to. Uh, get her on a TV show even after she had done the first Meet the Parents. So it was and a then, lot of fun. Yeah, she was Rebecca on Sports Night, and then she played Jimmy Smith's wife on two seasons of West Wing. Yeah, yes, yeah, she did. She, she was really good in that role, too. Uh, just really playing the right amount of kind of frustrated that she's thrown in this, you know, role as a politician's wife, but also kind of really proud of him. So, yeah, I, I just, I, like I said, I, she's just one of my favorite people. It'd be, it'd be very funny if I discovered that I was lured in, into uh, a Terry Polo podcast under false pretenses. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, talk about Springsteen, but no, yes. but you're, you're, you're right. You, you just reminded me about, of the, the final two years of West Wing in which uh, Jimmy Smith ran against Alan Alda's Arnie Vedic character for the presidency. It was like, oh, wow, there was there was a time when when Martin Sheen wasn't even the president. So I'm happy to t- I, I'm happy to talk about West Wing more than I'm happy to talk about my own career. So that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I sometimes wonder and we're going to get to music in a minute, but I know that sometimes musicians will look at other musicians and go, how the hell do they do that? I, I sometimes wonder if writers look at people like Aaron Sorkin and go, okay, de- deal with the devil, right? I mean, that's, that's how this had to happen. Yeah. I mean, there are certain people who are just kind of blessed with, you know, both an inordinate amount of talent and ambition and a voice all their own. I mean, and, I mean, like you know what Aaron Sorkin does is a little different. Is a little different than than maybe what I do. You know, you know, because my experience has almost entirely been in in sitcoms. And you know, although he, you know, while he did Sports Night, yeah, you know, he, he's probably more associated with writing witty dialogue, you know, and banter in dramas. You know, but I, there is no question. I look at what he does in awe. I mean, I was in fact thinking about that today. You know, um, it, it's funny you mentioned it because I was thinking about Aaron Sorkin and about the opening sequence in Social Network where he um, and I, I can't remember if it was Kate, I think it's Rooney Mara are having this like really fast paced, but like inner lack, inner, it's, 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 I'm, I'm forgetting the word for the, the dialogue, but it's. It's, it's, overlapping you know, yes back and forth overlapping yeah. dialogue yes, yes thank you i'm, I'm getting older and, and they um you know they're both talking over each other 
and a, and at a slightly different place in the conversation. And that's that's both such a hallmark of Aaron Sorkin and something that nobody else can do. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I go back even as far as, you know, his original play, you know, his original adaptation of his, of his own play, A Few Good Men, um, which apparently he wrote like while bartending and like he was, you know, in, you know, during his breaks, he would write snippets of like that, what is now like incredibly famous seminal dialogue on napkins um, as he was tending bar. But like, like that's a guy who came out of the gate. First thing he did was a few good men, Um, you know, so like, I think that's like a, a pretty compelling argument that there are some people who just have a voice, have a style and have been able to, you know, have it come to fruition. And that's true, whether you're writing movies, writing comedy or, or writing music, you know, um, you know, I, I, I don't know, you know, Bruce's, you know, I know the story of him, you know, signing to CBS and him doing, yeah. you know, a lot of the auditions, um, you know, a lot of which, you know, became, you know, uh, I think it was John Hammond, who had been the A&R guy who had also yes. signed Bob Dylan, um, you know, and a lot of the, a lot of the stuff eventually became, uh, you know, a sizable portion of Greetings from Asbury Park. And a lot of it only came out uh, in album form this past year or past couple of years ago on Letters to You, you know, where he sort of repurposed three of the songs from that era, including, I think, one of the songs from the original audition. But, yeah. you know, you know, I know, I don't know a ton, but I, you know, I've, I've watched a lot of the documentaries and I read Bruce's autobiography. And, you know, and certainly he had to put in the years, you know, in New Jersey bar bands to get to that point where he was getting his first break. But like, much like Aaron Sorkin, um, one could certainly argue that he came out with a voice fully for. So um, my, Brian, my, and I promised listeners we're going to get to music, but you, you reminded me of a story that I think illustrates that really well. They were doing a documentary, some sports channel, and they showed um, John Elway's mother. And John Elway's mother says, oh, you know, after the game, uh, John would sit in the back seat and him and his dad would go over every play. They would talk about it. They'd break it down. And I think that's one of the reasons why John is such a gifted quarterback is that his dad being a coach and everything just helped him do that so they cut to Troy Aikman's mom and she says well I think the reason Troy is such a really good quarterback is after the game we would not talk football it was forbidden in the car we would always talk about something else and I think that ability of staying away from the game and existing other features and having other things is the reason why he's so gifted (laughs) and the idea is right if you're a hall of fame quarterback you're going to be a Hall of Fame quarterback, right? So if you have a voice, if you have a singular voice, it's going to show up somehow. No, those are both fantastic examples because, you know, they really are the polar opposite of each other. You know, when you only gave me the Elway example, I was like, so that's it. That's the secret sauce. That's the key. You know, he and his dad, who was a famous uh, college coach at, at first at San Jose State and later at Stanford, like, right. wow, he's, pick, he's picking his dad's brain. There's the answer. And then you're telling me this, this story about Troy, who's another one of my all-time favorites, and yeah. it's the exact opposite. So, like, there's, you know, in both of their cases, there is something obviously innate in them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but their experience on, 
on how they got to their break and how they were able to sustain their success probably came from you know pretty different places i love that story yeah and i love it especially because uh you know i'm both a long time ucla football fanat football specifically yeah uh, fanatic you know because both of my parents went there and as a as a kid who, who grew up in the san fernando valley and still lives there you know john elway was one of my you know first grade idols because i was i started following him when he was a quarterback when he was still in high school at Granada Hills High. And, you know, he was every bit the prodigy that we've come to associate him with, you know, from his later success at Stanford and on the Denver Broncos. So, you know, like Bruce, like Aaron Sorkin, like Troy Aikman, you know, there are people who just come out seemingly destined for success. And then you could, and then you look at Tom Brady, who, you know, somehow slipped through everyone's the cracks at the combine and was yeah. not drafted until the sixth round. So, <clears throat> yeah. you know, there is certainly a case for some people having a slower cooking and, you know, sort kind of reaching their peak and fulfilling their potential uh, at their own pace. So, um, Hey, I, I didn't know we could talk about football on this. <laughs> I was going to say, Brian, okay. I have now fooled you twice. We are doing a Terry Polo, Troy Aikman, you know, spotlight this is, podcast. This is fun. Wow. You're hitting, you're hitting all of us. We're going to talk about sitcoms and, and yeah. college football. This is fantastic. Yeah. I don't so, have to talk about music at all. Yeah. <laughs> so you said you grew up there in the California area, right? Uh, actually Los Angeles. That's correct. Yes. All right. Sub, sort of the suburbs of Los Angeles. What LA. kind of, yeah. What kind of music did your family listen to? Talk to me about growing up your origin stories. Huh? You know, like, so I was born in at the very end of 1965. Okay. So um, my very first musical memories, you know, not that my parent, you know, my dad was about 10 years older than my mom. So, you know, he was a little old to be, you know, sort of, in the midst of the rock and roll revolution that was happening um, in the mid sixties, but all of my most vivid and happiest musical memories from like, you know, from birth to five, let's say all involved the Beatles. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time like going through my, my parents' vinyl and a lot of it, you know, it, admit, admittedly, a lot of it was, you know, Herb Albert and Vicky Carr and, and, uh, and, and scores to foreign movies, but like of the things that appealed to me, I was able to find Meet the Beatles and Sgt. Pepper and the White Album, and then the the original Monkeys album and more of the Monkeys. So the Beatles and the Monkeys were really kind of the Rosetta Stone for my just being kind of obsessed with that pop narcotic. Yes, uh, you, know, you know that's kind of the sound that was in my house, and um, even as I went, even and we and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, even in high school, um, you know, when there was a kind of, you know, a lot, you know, so I'm going to high school in the eighties and I'll talk a lot of bit about sort of all the, the, the genres of rock that were kind of available to me and specifically as someone who was growing up in LA, but even then, one of the things that appealed to me most, there was something called the Paisley underground, which was kind of a repurposing of like 60s psychedelic sounds um, that had been popular, you know, sort of mid '60s to late '60s, uh, by but by bands in the '80s. Uh, so I was going to a lot of those shows, and in turn rediscovering a ton of 
a lot of the, uh, the sounds that I've often heard, you know, both Bruce and little Steven talk about as being incredibly formative in terms of uh, developing their taste and their sound, you know, band, everything from the birds uh, to the Dave Clark five, to the turtles, to Herman's hermits, to Paul Revere and the Raiders, to love and the door. I mean, so like that, sort of um, mid-60s, 64 to 66 pop rock is sort of, that, that's that's kind of like the, the foundational stone for all of my taste. And, uh, you know, in many ways, it's probably not surprising that like a lot of like the, the Bruce melodies that, that I find most appealing are ones that kind of play off of that sound or echo that sound or are sort of, you know, rooted in it, because I know that is a lot of the stuff that Bruce and the band um, grew up being most influenced by, yeah. you know, and you can, you can hear, you know, you hear it even when people are holding signs and he's playing, you know, double shot of my baby's love by the swinging medallions or, you know, any number of like mid sixties obscurities, you know, um, pretty flamingo by man for man, you know, so like a lot of his taste ends up being my taste, although he's probably, about a half generation older than I am. Yeah. So, uh, Brian, did you know? I have certain cliches, and uh, if if I meet someone from England, I immediately ask, "Oh, are you a Doctor Who fan?" If I ask sure. someone who grew up in Jersey, I go, "Hey, are you a Bruce fan?" Right. So, I you're one of my first people that I've had that are native Los Angeles. Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys, where are they in your musical, you know, fandom? Because that was my first musical obsession right out of high school. I graduated high school in 77. I picked up Endless Summers on an eight track and had never heard anything like that before. Wow. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, there's, yeah, there's no question that um, in many ways, you know, like the Beach Boys along with the Beatles was probably amongst the more ubiquitous sounds that, you know, that you heard growing up, you know, it's probably true anywhere in America. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but specifically in Southern California around that time, um, it was only probably in high school that I then, um, you know, like during sort of my 60s revisionist phase. Yeah. That I know my, my brother gave me a cassette of pet sounds and that, you know, and then that turned me on to the whole cult of Brian Wilson and, you know, and just sort of, you know, the majesty of his compositions um and that and that kind of opened the door like to a whole other level you know beyond just you know what i might have known from you know an endless summer compilation yeah or you know or sort of their you know you know they're you know i was probably like i said more familiar with their 62 to 65 hits and then once you start kind of like hearing the melancholia that you know and just the, the the textures that come in pet sounds, you know, whether it's God only knows or Caroline no or Sloop John B or wouldn't it be nice? And then obviously, you know, the stuff that you know that came sort of immediately after that, including you know the sort of failed uh, in quotes. You can't see me, but I'm making air quotes. Uh, failed smile project, which he eventually put out later. But um, there's no question that. Uh, you know, that Brian Wilson obviously had a huge influence, you know, on my taste. And then similarly, you know, I know that, you know, like the Brian Wilson, uh, and I was thinking about this just today because both Brian Wilson and Paul McCartney uh, both 
had their 80th birthdays in the past two days. Right. And I know that each was like a really prodigious influence on the other that, um, you know, that Paul McCartney heard pet sounds and, and then wrote here, there and everywhere. Um, and that, and then it was largely influential on the, you know, the creation of, of Sergeant Pepper and, and then, and vice versa. I know that. Yeah. Like Brian has often said when he heard rubber soul, he's like, Oh, I've got to work on this, which led to pit sounds, which led to Sergeant Peppers. And it's like, yeah. Um, I know. Exactly right. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just such an, it had to be such an exciting time. And I know that, you know, both were, you know, obviously influenced by Dylan at this, at the same time, you know, and that, mm-hmm. you know, Dylan, Dylan's, you know, folks, you know, folkier sounds clearly had an influence on, on rubber soul. Although, and this is so music nerd of me to say, but I'll say it anyway, what we think of the folk version of, of rubber soul is actually the American version that was not how the Beatles ever intended it, but was kind of a cobbled together version of some songs from rubber soul, but also songs from help and yesterday and today that all, you know, the record company capital uh, USA found sort of, the folkiest versions from the three albums and put it together in a way that the Beatles didn't like, but is arguably one of my favorite albums of all time. Cause it, you know, it's yeah. the one that, op- it's the one that opens with, I, uh, I just can't, I just can't see your face. So or, or, I've just seen a face. Yes. I've just seen a face and has it's only love two songs that are not available on the, uh, the more commonly heard uh, British version of rubber song. So I know one of the, in fact, you know, what your one of your most recent gigs is working on Fuller House. Um, any chance you talk to Beach Boys with John Stamos? Because that would be I'd be like, oh, forget all this other stuff. Let me let me I want to talk about you hanging with Mike Love and Brian. <laughs> well, I I never met Brian, okay. but I did meet I did meet Mike Love once and I, I have I got my picture taken with him. Nice. So that was, so that was kind of a uh, a hoot, and you you always know it's Mike Love. Because he's either always in a baseball hat that says the Beach Boys or says Mike Love. Yes, so there, there is no mistake. There is no mistaking him for anyone else. But um, I've never met Brian Wilson, but I know that he eats lunch at the same deli um, almost every day for the last twenty years. So um, if if I desperately needed to find him, I would know where to look. I, um, I yeah, I just watched Long Promise Road. Uh, you know, I just recently watched a documentary and my wife and I are going to see, he's coming to Dallas tomorrow, um, Chicago and Brian Wilson and Blondie Chaplin, Al Jardine are all touring together. So we're going to see Chicago and Brian Wilson's band tomorrow. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Ironically, I've never, that's one of the few bands I've never seen live, but, um, uh, you know, as, as as we talk more about Bruce, you might just you, you might be surprised to discover there seems to be very little correlation between bands I love the most and how often I've seen the band. Oh, how funny! You know, be, you know, because I would say, like, if someone were to like know me pretty well, they would say, "Oh, Beatles and Bruce are arguably Brian's two greatest loves and two greatest influences." And I've seen Paul McCartney once, and I've seen Bruce twice. Oh, how funny. Uh, yeah. If if I put, who do you think you've seen the most perform, uh, Brian? Um, 
And again, like the correlation doesn't necessarily add up to who I am or what my, you know, my tastes really are. But I've seen The Grateful Dead 20 times. Okay. Um, and I've seen I've seen REM 11 times. Now, REM, I would, I would definitely have as a massive influence on me. And probably the band that most was like sort of representative of my gen, like my exact generation. Like, sure. That was our, like, that was a case of like, oh, that was our band. And we knew them before they were big and got to watch them, you know, toil through the indie scene and then, and then have massive popularity. And then we all got to have sort of uh, success by proxy. Um, the, you know, the dead, I obviously love. And I love the experience of going, but like, if you were to meet me, I don't know that if you, you would be able to pick me out on a street as a deadhead, because there's nothing about me that would necessarily indicate, but I just saw them again, uh, dead in company at Dodger stadium a few weeks ago. So I was able to rack up my 20th show. Very um, nice. You know, but I mean, I have, to, you know, admittedly, many of those came in, in big chunk during college. <laughs> Because that was like definitely a thing to do um, in the in the eighties. I mean, not that it ever has died out, even with Jerry's passing. But um, I was able to see them a lot and see them a lot in in sort of big chunks. Where uh, you know, whereas most bands are able to see sort of once on a tour if you're lucky. The Dead you could see three times in a weekend, uh, you know, by virtue of traveling. So I think that's where I got those numbers. But it still doesn't explain sort of my my woeful lack of, of Springsteen numbers. So I hope you don't kick me off the pod. No. Well, um, but you know, <laughs> but like even I'm surprised. I'm like, wait, I guess it has only been twice and only since I've been an adult. And I think uh, a lot of my uh, Bruce experiences and memories are sort of tied in more with things that I've experienced as a, as a grown man and as a husband and a father than they did necessarily um, during kind of more formative teen high school college year, which I know is probably not the norm, but uh, knowing that I would be speaking to you today, I had to give a, I had to give like a lot of honest thought to when I picked him up, what he meant to me at different times, and in turn, what else I was probably listening to at those moments that might have precluded me from like sort of being more fully committed to Springsteen fandom and why. So those are, those are some interesting uh, soul searching that you've, uh, you've forced me into. I am glad. I'm not sure you'll like the answer. No, no, no. In (laughs) fact, what's, what's, what's interesting, Brian is um, I usually ask the question and I preface this way. I go the amount of times you've seen Bruce perform live is not a fair barometer of how big of a fan you are. I think a lot of that has to do with age, your location, your economic situation, and circumstances. There are people that that are you know found him in the early seventies that live in the East Coast that have seen him over a hundred times. There's other people that uh, I have had two, um, both uh, in their early teens, like barely breaking 20, one of them, and the other one, 19, that this last Broadway show was the first time they had ever seen him. Uh, And they are massive fans. So I just think it's, you can get into that kind of bragging, right? Like, well, 
if you can count how many you've seen it doesn't you're not a real fan and sure. it just well, it depends it depends on the circumstances yeah you know? no, well i i appreciate you both saying that and 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 delineating a lot of the reasons, both geographic and emotional maturity and socioeconomic, that all sort of factor into it. And I think you're 100% correct, 100% correct, because, you know, I don't consider my fandom to be any less than than anyone else. And I don't think the connection that I feel to both, you know, he as an artist and a person and, and to the music is necessarily any less emotional or meaningful than anyone else's it, it just um it's, it's sort of the age i was when i when it connected to me combined with geography i think had, had a lot to do with it um and and just sort of in reference to what you, you were talking about those kind of early 70s bruce heads from the tri-state area like i didn't i i both am a little too young for that mm-hmm. and I, I think being a Bruce fan on the West Coast was a lot more of a niche experience. It required, it, it was more of a choice right? Um, than to be like, you know, you hear about like those kind of Jersey, Long Island, you know, Bruce fans, you know, who see him 50 times at the Meadowlands or, you know, or in Nassau County or, or MSG, you know, and they, you know, they see Bruce and they see Billy Joel and that's it. And like that was never going to be that was never going to be my experience, um, and I think that's not a bad thing. I think in large part, you know, growing up in California, there's I'm not, I'm, and I don't mean to suggest that it, like that growing up, you know, on the East Coast and being a Bruce fan in that way is parochial or provincial, but like my experience was 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 different in that a in in the early formative period that you were talking about, like you know. In 75, I'm still listening to Casey Kasem and, and AM radio. And, you know, I think by 78, you know, at the time of darkness, I'm not even aware that darkness exists because I'm still 12 years old. So I'm still, I'm listening to, you know, disco and the Grease soundtrack. And, oh, and, absolutely. Brian. You know, and, and get the knack. So, yeah. A, I'm, I'm not, you know, I was aware that there was this guy, Bruce Springsteen, who had been on the cover of Time and Newsweek simultaneously in 1975. And I knew that Bruce Springsteen was something that smart people listened to. And it was often like discussed as like, oh, college kids really like Bruce Springsteen. So it was always kind of out there in, in my mind as something that was aspirational. But, you know, that, back then, like I had very little money to spend on records and I'm, and I was sort of limited to what we listened to and, you know, in my parents' car. So I was listening to top 40 radio and I was, you know, I, I think the first record I bought was wings over America. And then I got Steve Miller band's greatest hits, but I was not at, at, at 10 years old. And then 13 years old, I wasn't the market to go out and buy born to run or darkness on the edge of town when they came out on vinyl. Well, um, so yeah, I'll I'll make you I don't I don't think I need to make you feel better, but I'll empathize with you. So sure. I graduated high school in 77. I'm in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Moss yes. Bluff is the suburb of Lake Charles where I'm going to high school, Sam Houston High School. And um and I remember going to a barber shop 
and there was either Time or Newsweek. I don't remember which one, but the, you know, and it's whichever one that says, you know, world's number one rock star, whatever. Sure. And I'm looking at this going, who is this guy? Have they never heard of Elton John? Have they yeah, never, no, heard, you mean, know, have they never heard of Queen? You know, how about Barry Manilow? Or like, no, who those is were this? The, those those <laughs> right? were the biggies. I mean, yeah. Was, I mean, it was in, in 1975. It was impossible for anyone. I mean, maybe Led Zeppelin on the hard rock, you know, um, sort of stadium attendance level. But in terms of pop 40 dominance, there was nobody who compare, compared with Elton John. Um, it, it, and in fact, I don't know that there had been since the Beatles at their heyday. So it was really not uncommon. And in fact, very common for someone in my age in 1974, 1975, up through, you know, Philadelphia Freedom and Don't Go Breaking My Heart. And even Island Girl, um, you know, for Elton John to be really kind of the main pop influence in addition to my kind of rediscovering the Beatles and, and, and using my own money to buy the, the, you know, the red and the blue albums, which were uh, essentially their, their two greatest hits divided by eras. Uh, but those were like albums that I was able to sort of buy independent of my parents and begin like, you know, a further deep dive into, you know, into Beatles melodies and, and the whole mythology. So yes, definitely Beatles slash Wings, Elton John, and like you're right on about about Queen because they, you know, I remember around '76, Bohemian Rhapsody being like I would tell people, oh, oh, that's my favorite song. Um, so you, mm -hmm. I think you are dead on in terms of what the average kid was listening to versus you know John Landau and and, and other critics of the era. Well, and I like I, you know, I I had the am radio i had a clock radio next to my bed that's what i listened to music on so you talk about a great sound system right it's just this Absolutely. little am clock radio that's what i had and yeah and i was listening to 93 khj yeah and um so uh i believe 16 1580 klou i'd have to look that up but i know it's klou and you know brian the fm station that's what the druggies listen to, right? I mean, that, yeah, you know, no, that, I'm, was too, that was too scary. Yeah. You know? and, and, and also, I remember telling, I think, I, I want to say it's Caroline. It was Caroline or Karen, someone I was in, uh, in my homeroom or one in my class. And I said, I don't listen to FM because I don't know the song. So you can't sing along. And yeah. they, they looked at me like, yeah, that's the point. And right. I was it like, sounds, no, the whole point of a like radio. Had, no, it sounds like you had a similar, similar ear and a yes. similar fear of FM radio that I did. I mean, you know, like I bet there were kids in my class who had older siblings or, or who were smoking pot in the fourth grade. Cause I, I did have those. It was the Valley and the seventh. Sure. And those kids were listening to, Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and Grand Funk Railroad. Yes. And, um, you know, just obviously like, you know, harder, heavier stuff. Um, and obviously like we eventually, I, you know, as a teenager, I made that transition over to, you know, the FM dial. And I went from KHJ to, you know, you know, any of your listeners in the Southern California area would know KLOS or KMET. 
and then more specifically K Rock, which is the, you know sort of the you know the sink and known when it comes to uh, American modern rock station. Um, so those were you know the, how my ears were being formed. Obviously went through a transition as I made the the leap from AM to FM. I'm curious to hear you you talked about your transition and discovering Bruce. Can you? When did you kind of become a quote-unquote Bruce fan? And what about his music spoke to you, Brian? Yeah, no, I mean, it's. I spent a little time today trying to pinpoint where it first kind of hit my consciousness. And I would, I would have to say it was kind of a two-fold thing that happened around 1980. I think it was, you know, upon the release of The River and, and more specifically The River Tour. Now, I was too young for my parents to let me go to a concert. Um, but all the kind of cool older kids that I knew from down at the beach, they were all going to see him. I, I, it was either at the Forum or the Sports Arena. And I remember, A, giving them money to buy me a, a Bruce concert shirt because I thought that was something that I needed. So obviously I must have heard the music somewhere. So I remember specifically, and this is this will date me because people don't do this anymore apparently or haven't in 30 years, but I remember hearing Born to Run now, it was a few years late, but I remember hearing it on KLOS and, and just being so moved by the, you know, the power of it that I had to tape it. And I had it on a cassette tape with Crazy Train from Ozzy Osbourne. I know those are two things that don't usually go together, but there was something about that I knew that you know Bruce was something that smart people listened to and that Born to Run really moved me. And I think that was happening concurrently with me probably being exposed to Hungry Heart. So I know that was his his first top 10 single. So that was probably his first song, which would have actually come onto my radar, actually on the radio. So it, it was a combination of people I thought were interesting and smart and in and a, and a, and a few cases, very pretty, all had declared themselves Bruce fans. So I, I wanted to be part of that, coupled with you know rediscovering things like Born to Run in concert, in, in conjunction with, hearing some of the new stuff like Hungry Heart. Um, now, I don't remember whether at the, and I think it may be, it's quite possible the guy who drove me to school because uh, we had older kids drive me to school. I, I, there's a very good chance that he also had The River on cassette because um, The River remains my favorite Bruce album. I don't know if that, I, I think it's the best. That might be darkness in my mind, but as far as giving me just pure enjoyment and most listens is definitely been The River. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of where I was hooked. But I will say that with the caveat that in Southern California, in the early 80s, there were a couple things happening that weren't Bruce. Now, on the, on the one hand, you had the rise of, you know, what they called modern rock radio as, as exemplified by K-Rock. And all these bands, everything from The Clash to The Police to The Go-Go's and X and The Blasters, a lot of whom were local who you could you could see at any time you know and that extended to bands like ska bands like the english beat and madness or punk bands like black flag and the minutemen and the dead kennedys and agent orange so there was just a lot that we were being exposed to here in la by virtue of it being like you know that in new york is sort of being the home of where you were going to get the most exposure to british bands to, to, you know, to a lot of the bands that came out of the second British invasion, whether it's synth bands like Duran Duran and Human League, uh, 
you know, Devo was huge, uh, you know, in, uh, where, you know, amongst my friends, as were the cars, as were the B-52. So these were, you know, kind of mind-blowing new sounds. And, and on the, the flip side of that, you had the more traditional AOR kind of hard rock sounds that you would hear on like KLOS. And that was like your Van Halens and your Led Zeppelins. Um, but there was no question that growing up in the Valley and Rush, those were the bands of the people who were riding dirt bikes and skateboarding and had longer hair than I did. So that's who they were listening to. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there was not, at least amongst my peers, that kind of Bruce mania that you might associate with, with a New Jersey upbringing. Sure. We had absolutely. one kid, we had one kid in our group who we all made fun of. And now we all will look back like, wow, he was way ahead of this curve. <laughs> he, he was a guy who came from Newcastle, England and came to our high school, our middle school in eighth grade. And for some reason he was obsessed with Springs at the exclusion of everything else. And I remember he wouldn't listen to the Go-Go's and he wouldn't listen to Van Halen. And he made fun. He's like, you'll see the test of time is going to prove me correct. And he was right. <laughs> that is great. That yeah. is so funny. Um, yeah, go ahead. You go mentioned you've gone to yeah. a couple of shows. What shows did you go to? So both have been pretty recent. Okay. Um, and, and again, like, I don't know why I didn't go when I had the opportunity. Obviously, this is the long way of answering. Obviously, when Born in the USA came out, you know, Bruce became not just a ubiquitous rock figure, but a ubiquitous pop figure, like, you know, sort of along the lines of Prince, Michael Jackson, and Madonna. It's kind of, it's kind of hard to explain to younger people who only know him as kind of this elder statesman of rock and kind of the epitome of dad rock that he was once the biggest pop star in the world. Right. Um, so then, you know, once he got that big, he was obviously way more on my radar I owned that cassette. I knew all the videos. I loved Bruce. And I did think he was one of the good guys. He was like our good guy who broke big. But like, I was still probably more attached to early REM, you know, because I went to Brown University, which, you know, was a little on the esoteric side and, and on the new wave side. So like, you know, we were listening to early REM and early U2 and talking heads and violent femmes. So I'm sure there were people there who got really into Bruce and saw him 10 times at the Meadowlands or four times at the LA Coliseum. But for some, I, I think he was too big then. He had yeah. become too main. Like I missed him when he was on the way up and I missed him when he was too mainstream. Um, so the ones, so long story short, and I'll jump ahead as an adult, you know, while Bruce has always had like a place in my heart, I feel like it kind of connected more emotionally with me with a handful of things um, as a grown-up, one of which was uh, the suicide of my father, who took his life in 2008. And for whatever reason, the only thing that was able to soothe me musically was Bruce. Um, and Is there something I, specifically, one song or... God, I, I'm not thinking of one song. Okay. Um, but interestingly... In my mind, you know, and you know, as you get older, you, you start to associate things that may not even been connected. But I, I know that Tim Russert, who was a giant Bruce fan, the NBC News right. correspondent, he died the same year. And I remember that Bruce played, a, you know, like an acoustic version of Thunder Road at his funeral. I remember that. And I remember just 
not that I was close to Tim Russert, but mm -hmm. I think because I was so exposed and vulnerable emotionally from losing my own father, then like somehow I, that all was connected in my mind. And I went through like a, a very deep Bruce phase in which I like downloaded, I think, 2000 Bruce songs to my iTunes, um, you know, and a lot of the kind of the more melancholy stuff is are the things that have had kind of more appeal to me um, as I've been a dad, as I've lost a dad, you know, whether like you mentioned the Bruce on Broadway. Well, if you were to like put a gun to my head and I would rather you didn't, but I would probably say tougher than the rest is my favorite Bruce song. Right. Um, but specifically the one he does with Patty, um, in addition to brilliant disguise on the Broadway shows. And I don't know why that, that I, I had had a cert, I had surgery that week that it came on Netflix and, and I want, and ended up watching that concert four times in the hospital. Now, maybe it was the, uh, <coughs> the opioids that they gave me, but like those two songs both soothed me at a time when I was in a great deal of pain. And have remained, you know, like incredibly soothing, you know, and it's not to say that I didn't love the originals, but there was something about like the, the added meaning that he imbued it with, with age and tying it in with his, his love of Patty that just, I found incredibly impactful. Like other examples, I'll give you an example that's really personal. One of the two times that I saw him, the first time was at Dodger Stadium. I'm trying to, I want to say that was maybe a tour associated with mad the magic album yeah um and then i saw him again at the sports arena indoors um when he was doing when he was uh touring his revival of the river and like i said i've heard the river thousands of times you know the album but like the song stolen car somehow had eluded me mm -hmm. and i was and i remember hearing it almost as if for the first time that night and i was there with my wife um and we had not been going through great times and there was something about the lyrics about this couple that had fallen in love when they were very young and then had drifted apart that so resonated with me that like on the ride home, I, 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 I had a kind of a come to Jesus talk with my, with my wife. Now we've been together for 31 years. We've been friends for 38 years. I mean, we really, we met in high school and we go all the way back and it's the love of my life. And like, we had this talk in large part that was triggered by that song in which it was like the talk was one of do we want to make this work or do, or or has it run its course and you know it led to a lot of really difficult discussions that and, but we're you know we're we've never been better than we are now and i think a lot of it has to do with sort of the emotions that were engendered by that song in that moment at that concert um so it's just really interesting to me how like even a Bruce song that I wouldn't have ever said was on my radar or was one of my favorites um, had such a kind of a profound impact on my life and on my emotional trajectory. You know, two things. One, um, a, a a writer named uh, Sarah Goodman wrote a, her first novel was kind of a Bruce themed novel beyond the palace. And it's a love story where um, a, a couple they meet and they follow a Bruce tour and, you know, stuff happens because it's a romance novel, right? That, you know, it's not sure. smooth sailing, but she talked about that. She was never a Bruce fan, but her grandmother died and she, her father was a big Bruce fan and she just, 
she picked up a mixtape that he had uh, had made for her and she and she stumbled on Atlantic City and the the lyrics everything dies baby that's a fact but maybe everything that dies someday comes back with her missing her grandmother she just played that song over and over again over and over again and that was the gateway to her becoming and now then Sarah's this you know massive fan um Land of Hope and Dreams and Better Days are my two songs that of that I in 2015 I was diagnosed with colon cancer um I'm fine now but I went through chemo and surgery and I I've listened and Better Days to me is a song that says this is life and you need to enjoy every moment of every day and not keep looking for better days, right? You, you know, too many people are waiting for their ship to come in and everything. And so those are, when people ask me who, what's your favorite songs, I always name those two. And then I said, the third changes every day, but those two are solidly on it. So yeah, no, I totally get it. I, mean, I find the land of hope and dreams, incredibly inspirational, you know, yeah. I, I think I probably first came across it on that 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 live in Madison Square Garden uh, disc that you know when the when he reformed the band in ninety nine two thousand um, <laughs> you know I was thinking of what my favorite songs are I was gonna and what I, I much like you it's hard to it's hard to pin down just one I was gonna say if, if you're throwing me a birthday party I want you to I want you to play No Surrender if you're throwing yeah. me a, if you're throwing me my funeral. I'd like to hear tougher than the rest. Yes. Um, if it's just uh, if it's just every day for some reason, I'm I'm really attached to Janie. Don't you lose heart? One of the B side tracks mm-hmm. um, from the Born in the USA sessions that I probably uh, I think I've discovered on the tracks four uh, D four CD set and like I I have no emotional connection to it. It's just it just sounds. Per- it, I think I love. Bruce, when he embraces his his really poppy and his really romantic sides, and I don't mean poppy like Glory Days or or yeah. Pink Cadillac, two songs that are not my favorite, but like like poppy in the sense of really kind of feels like the what the stuff that Bruce and I listened to back from the sixties, you know? Yeah, like probably my three of my other favorite songs are all from the river, and they're all fast ones which is a little a characteristic uncharacteristic you know cuz i usually like like kind of the slow emotional ones but uh out of the street sherry darling and uh the ties that bind which i didn't really recognize it but people have pointed out to me the opening guitar is almost identical to what you might hear on a birds album and i was like yes 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 it is it's that that, that sort of 12 string uh Roger McGuinn style guitar um so it, it's probably not super uncommon or inexplicable that a lot of my favorite Bruce stuff are the ones that are most influenced by that kind of same British invasion sound and that same 60s pop sound, you know, that I was first hooked on, you know, as a kid, as a Beatles fan, as a Monkees fan. And then again, in high school, when I was, you know, the only guy in my high school who was obsessed with the birds and dressing like roger mcguinn in uh turtlenecks and blazers don't ask but i have yeah. the pictures like i can put them on twitter but uh... brian and i were having so much fun that we kept on talking so come back tomorrow for the second half of our conversation <clears throat> where we 
uh, discuss more of his writing career, uh, more of his music fandom, and uh, he answers the Mary question, of course. Thanks. Doing a podcast at times can be a one-way conversation, and I hate that. So please let me know what you like and don't like about the work I'm doing. You can reach the podcast via email at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. The show is on Twitter, at setlustingbruce, and my personal Twitter is at jessejacksondfw. You can support the podcast by subscribing via your favorite podcast player and leaving us a review. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find us. And please tell a friend about the podcast, especially if they love Bruce or music, because it will make a difference. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Settlers. The theme for Settlers was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.